Well, good morning, Lake City. My name is Reese. If we haven't met, I get the honor and privilege of serving as the youth pastor here at Lake City. And before we get started this morning, I want to remind uh, everyone that next weekend is going to look a lot different. So if you show up uh, at this hour, we will be here, uh, but service is going to look completely different because we will be in our family reunion. And I want to be clear that that does not just include a biological family, but we're also saying that we want everyone, our whole church family, to feel welcome and invited uh, to our family reunion coming up this next uh, weekend. But know that the service times will be different. We're kicking off at 1030 next Saturday with a brunch, and then we're going to go all through the afternoon with fun uh, games and activities. We're going to have messages and worship, and then we're going to finish that next uh, Sunday after with some worship and a message. Uh, so speaking of family, we have been doing our family series the last couple of weeks. Uh, Pastor Tome kicked us off with Powerhouse Family, and then last week, David gave a message on Powerhouse Marriage. And today, uh, I get to finish up this series, and we're going to be talking about a powerhouse youth, powerhouse youth. And, and before you uh, tune out, because you're like, man, I don't want to hear anything about youth. I don't have kids. This doesn't pertain to me. Uh, I want you to know that if, if you've gotten one thing from this series, I hope it's been that maybe your idea of what family is has expanded uh, as Pastor David and Pastor Tome have talked about, that family is not just the biological family, uh, but the church family. And so throughout this mes message, I'm going to be talking to parents, um, but I'm also going to be talking to the church as a whole, uh, as well as our youth here. So my question uh, for us this morning is how many of you have an embarrassing friend? Ra yeah, raise your, raise your hand if you have an embarrassing friend. Lowering that hand should be nice and high right there. Um, okay, raise your hand if you are the embarrassing friend. Yeah, even more, even more hands this time. Okay, that's awesome. Uh, throughout my childhood, I had a couple embarrassing friends. And I want to tell you about one of my most embarrassing friends that I've ever had. His name was Bestwick. And uh, for the sake of uh, him, I won't share his first name, uh, but his name was Bestwick. And our senior year at Gig Harbor High School, uh, we had this competition that was called Nerf Wars. Nerf Wars. And for those of you that don't know, uh, Nerf gun is just a little plastic gun that shoots a styrofoam bullet really slowly. But basically, uh, we were put on a team and our job as a team of five was to hunt another team down and destroy them with our Nerf gun. And at the end, if you were able to defeat all the other teams and shoot them before they shot you, uh, then you would win the competition. And let me tell you that this wasn't just any competition, because if you won Nerf Wars, you took home, it was like three, four thousand uh, dollars. Yeah, so this was a big, big deal. Every year, uh, there were kids who would drive around crazy in their cars, chasing people down. And so it was a serious competition. And one day, my senior year of high school, a couple buddies and I are sitting there like, man, we should, we should go find the team that we're supposed to hunt. So we, we leave school at lunch, and we're driving around trying to find the team that we're supposed to hunt. We're not able to find them. So we turn around, head back to school. And we're, we're driving, and we stop at a stop sign. 
And we see this guy, uh, he's probably in his 50s or so, just riding his bike, um, not a part of Nerf Wars or anything. Um, and Bestwick, my embarrassing friend, is sitting right next to me. And he starts kind of like doing this awkward like giggle. And we're like, what? Like, what is Bestwick up to? And he rolls down his window and pulls the Nerf gun out and shoots this poor biker guy uh, in the back with this Nerf gun. And the dude, like, flips out. And we're all in the car like, oh, my gosh, Bestwick, what did you just do? So we drive back to school. The guy actually ends up following us to school um, on his bike. So he gets there, like, 30 minutes later. But he gets there. And later he actually calls the cops. And the cops actually showed up at some of our houses because the guy had, been cla- had claimed that he had been shot with a BB gun um, and not a Nerf gun. And I had to explain to my parents, like, I don't know why I was with Bestwick. I, you guys know I spent too much time with him. Uh, it, was, it was a weird story that I'd explain away to my parents. Um, so for me, uh, Bestwick is my embarrassing friend. Bestwick is my embarrassing friend. Is Jesus yours? Is Jesus yours this morning? Because for a lot of young people in America today, Jesus is their embarrassing friend. And for even more people in our country, Jesus isn't even their friend, but he is a complete and utter afterthought. You you see, for the first time in the history of our country, we are living in a post-Christian society. And you've probably heard that said before. We've been in a a post-Christian world. Absolutely. But for the first time in American history, 2021, Less than 50% of people said that they belong to a church. It's the first time that's ever been less than 50%, down from 70% in the 1990s. And the reason I bring this up is because I believe it's actually reminiscent of Daniel in the Hebrew exiles in Daniel chapter 1. And some of you know the story of Daniel When Daniel, Ezekiel, and other Hebrew exiles were taken out of Jerusalem, Jerusalem, a place where God was at the center of the universe, where people worshiped Yahweh, loved Yahweh, and were fully devoted to God. They were taken out of that world and placed into Babylon, a secular environment where God was not seen as king. And you know the story. Daniel and his friends had to completely rethink, how do I worship God in an environment that does not see God as king. And so the question I want to ask this morning is, is it possible that we are preparing our young people to face a world that no longer exists? Are we making disciples for Jerusalem when we need to be making disciples for Babylon? You know, for the past two weeks, we have been looking at a biblical model of family Today, we are going to be looking at what it means for young people to live out their faith in Babylon and how the family, both church family and biological family, can disciple our young people to live out a bold and authentic faith. And first off, I think it's helpful for us to understand where we are at in today's cultural moment. Because in many ways, the problem with Generation Z, which I'm going to talk about in just a minute, the problem with Generation Z is the same problem that every generation has had for the last thousands of years. And as followers of Jesus, we understand that that problem is sin. And the only remedy to that sin is the blood of Jesus. That's what we understand as followers of Jesus. 
But at the same time, Generation Z is facing a variety of problems that followers of Jesus have not had to face. And so I want to talk a little bit about who Generation Z is and some of the things that they are facing. So Generation Z, born between 1996 and 2010, a lot of people talk about uh, the millennial generation and actually, uh, usually in a negative light, but the millennial generation, uh, the youngest millennial today would be 25 years old. Um, Generation Z are the people in our elementary schools, middle schools, high schools, even college and entering the workforce now. Generation Z is the largest generation ever at 70 million people. One third reports being bullied online. And this is interesting. They are the first generation to not remember a world pre 9-11. 13 to 18 year olds are twice as likely as adults to say that they are atheists. And only 4% of Gen Z have a biblical worldview, 4%. But it's not all bad things. One of the most racially diverse generations in American history, with half of Gen Z being non-white. Another uh, thing about Gen Z, they're more inclusive than other generations. We actually see this, I see this in our youth group all the time, of young people wanting to include other young people in their communal activities. 40% report they interact with people who are different than them. Another distinctive, Gen Z values authenticity. 67% agree that being true to their values and beliefs is what makes a person cool. Authenticity. So why do these stats matter? I think that these stats give us a framework into understanding the world that our young people live in and how we can best take the gospel to them and pass down our faith to the next generation. The text that we're going to be looking at today, if you have your Bibles or you have a Bible app, we're going to put the verses up on the screen. It's going to be in Psalm 78. Psalm 78 verses 4 through 7 says that we will not hide these truths from our children. We will tell the next generation about the glorious deeds of the Lord, about his power and his mighty wonders. For he issued his laws to Jacob. He gave his instructions to Israel. He commanded our ancestors to teach them to their children. So the next generation might know them, even the children not yet born, and they in turn will teach their own children. So each generation should set its hopes anew on God, not forgetting his glorious miracles and obeying his commands. You know, I got to think that the author of the Psalms was well aware that it was possible that a new generation would arise without knowing God. And the psalmist is charging, I believe, parents, families, and the church as a whole to carry the torch and to pass down their faith to the next generation. And this brings us to our first point, which is that each generation must be taught afresh. Each generation must be taught afresh. Now, this may seem obvious, that we need to pass down our faith to the next generation. I think unfortunately, and I've thought this way sometimes, is that faith can be simply passed down through osmosis, that being next to someone and being a Christian will simply pass down our faith. But I think what the psalmist is after here in Psalm 78 is an intentional passing down of our faith. Teaching them is what the scripture says. Teaching them the ways of the Lord. I think what that looks like is instructing young people practically 
How do I read my Bible? How do I memorize scripture? What does it look like to pray? What does it look like to live in the context of a Christian community? What are the things that are the distinctives of the Christian community? Intentionally teaching the next generation. One of the challenges our young people are facing comes in the form of a statistic that honestly has haunted uh, the Western church for the last 10 or 15 years. And some of you probably know this statistic. It's that 70% of high schoolers who currently attend church will leave the church when they graduate high school. 70% of high schoolers will leave the church when they graduate high school. Now, this statistic is shocking. And instead of looking at secular culture or pointing the finger elsewhere, I think a good heart posture is to first ask what we could do as followers of Jesus and as the local church to say, man, we're not okay with this 70% number. We want to see a change in the next generation. The Fuller Youth Institute has been conducting research over the last 10 or 15 years asking this exact question, why? Why 70%? Why do so many young people leave the church when they graduate high school? And so throughout this message, I'm going to be referencing some of the stuff that Fuller Youth Institute has discovered on how we can pass down our faith to the next generation. And parents, or if you just genuinely are someone who care about the next generation, I highly recommend just Google searching Fuller Youth Institute. Uh, They have tons of resources of how you can practically talk to a young person about their faith. But one of the things that Fuller Youth Institute has found, this is what they say, that whether primarily, or excuse me, whether intentionally or not, churches and families present a predominantly legalistic gospel which translates to a checklist of do's and don'ts. This is what Dallas Willard calls the gospel of sin management. This checklist leads many young people to experience a burdened life of guilt, shame, and failure. It teaches young people that being a Christian is more about what we are against than what we are for. And of course, as followers of Jesus, we are certainly against sinful behavior. There's no doubt about that. But we're also for something, first and foremost. We're for a loving relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're for sharing his love with other people. And we're for living the full and abundant life that God has called us to. The list of do's and don'ts, this sort of gospel of sin management, this is what the Pharisees often base their faith off of. And I have to ask, is it any wonder that Jesus saved his harshest condemnations for the Pharisees. According to Fuller, it's because of this sort of legalism that lead many young people to leave the church, ultimately. So I want to ask the question, how do we change this? One of the very best things that Fuller recommends churches and parents and families to doing is creating an environment where young people feel comfortable enough to express their doubts and ask questions about their faith. And when we look to scripture for a model, we see that there are plenty of instances where people are honest with their doubts and asking questions about their faith. Psalm 94, 19 states that when doubts filled my mind, your comfort gave me renewed hope and cheer. 
When we're talking about doubt, I think it's important to note that doubt is not the same as unbelief. That's our second point. Doubt is not the same as unbelief. Genuine unbelief is a complete rejection of faith, or at least some part of faith. But meanwhile, doubt is a state of questioning, not fully rejecting. The other 70% statistic that a lot of people don't know about is that 70% of high school seniors in the church say that they have doubts about their faith. And the fact is, is the doubts are there. The question is, are we going to allow young people to express those doubts? I don't know what percentage of those people who have doubts actually audibly express them, but I think that could be part of our problem. Researcher and professor Irene Cho stated, doubt is not what kills faith. Silence is. Silence is. I think what she's after here is the doubt itself is not as dangerous as the silencing of those doubts. And think about it. When a young person asks a teacher or a parent or a leader or a youth pastor and asks a really hard question, like, why did God let all those people die in a forest fire last year? Or why would God allow evil things to happen to good people? When a really honest question is asked like that, and it's met with a, oh, we don't ask questions like that in church. Or Jesus is the answer. Just, just believe. I, th- I think what that often communicates to young people when we respond with those sorts of answers is one, that the church is not a safe place to ask questions. I think two, and more importantly, what that communicates to young people is that God is not big enough to answer my questions. And that is not the sort of God that we want to portray to our young people. When we don't allow young people to express doubts and ask questions in the context of a faith community, guess where they will go to ask those sorts of questions? Anywhere but the church. They will go to their friends or to their schools and ask these sorts of questions because then they'll be at least heard. One of the best answers, I'm convinced, that we can give to difficult questions comes in the form of four words. I don't know, but. I use this a lot. I don't know, but. I don't know the answer to your question. But why don't me, your parents, why don't we sit down and have a cup of coffee and talk through this together? Or I don't know, but let me do some research and let's get together and talk about this a little later. I think what this heart posture communicates to young people is that it's okay to not have all the answers. And as an adult, I'll be the first to say that I certainly do not have close to all the answers, and I still have questions. But I think what this communicates to young people is that it's possible to follow Jesus and still not have it all figured out. That being a Christian does not mean understanding everything specifically in the Bible that we might still have questions and wrestle with our faith. But we think that we have, we, we have a God who can intercede for our weaknesses and who can bridge that gap. Of course, Jesus didn't say, come to me, all who are smart and self-assured, right? He said, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. God's power is made perfect in weakness. And if I asked you this morning, who is the most prolific doubter in the history of the Bible? 
what would you say? You can shout out some answers. Thomas. Thomas. Absolutely. Okay. So Thomas, Thomas, he gets, he gets a bad rap, man. I feel bad for Thomas a little bit because that's all he's known as. He's doubting Thomas. John 20, here's the little, here's the little incident with Thomas. So the other disciples told Thomas, we have seen the Lord and check out Thomas's response. We all know it fairly well. He says, unless I see the, his hands, the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails, I will never believe. Eight days later, Jesus walks right up to Thomas and he's like, all right, Thomas, go ahead, put your finger in my wounds. And I'm sure Thomas is like, oh, geez, I'm actually doing this. Okay, this is kind of weird, Jesus. But he puts his finger in the wounds of Jesus. And Thomas responds with what I believe to be perhaps the most underrated remark in all of the New Testament. Thomas's response here, when he puts his finger in the wounds of God, in the wounds of Jesus, is my Lord and my God. Scholars believe that he was actually the first disciple to profess the divinity of Jesus, that he was actually God in the flesh. And guess what led to that realization? It was his doubt. It was not just doubt and leaving it there, but it was doubt and exploring that doubt. For Thomas, his doubt didn't leave, lead to disbelief, but it led to the ultimate belief that Jesus was surely God in the flesh. And so young person, I want to encourage you, ask questions. Ask your difficult questions. We might not have all the answers. We probably don't have all the answers, but we want to walk with you. We want to struggle with you in your faith. So please ask your parents your hard questions. Ask your leaders your hard questions, but don't struggle on your own. You know, Thomas is only mentioned one other time in the rest of scripture. And the dude just gets like a little mention in the book of Acts. He's just like kind of sprinkled in there. It's like he's on a roster list. And that's it. And you don't hear of Thomas anymore. But scholars, Eusebius and Hippolytus, wrote down something interesting in the year 200 AD about Thomas. And this is the story of what scholars believe happened to Thomas after Jesus ascended into heaven. Thomas actually went to India, took the gospel to India. And scholars believe that he reached more people groups, took the gospel farther than any other apostle. Doubting Thomas, the one who gets a bad rap. He was martyred, killed for his faith in 52 AD, but he preached the gospel until the day that he died. Doubt is not the same as unbelief. For Thomas, his doubts are what led him to proclaim Jesus is God. And if I asked you today, why do you believe in God? I'm guessing I'd probably hear some different answers. I'm guessing you might say, I believe in God because I believe in the authority and the power of scripture. Or maybe you tell me, Reese, I believe in God because I believe of his atoning work on the cross for me and my sins. Or maybe you'd say, Reese, I believe in God because I've experienced God. I've seen him move in my life. I know that he is real. 
A couple years ago when I uh, started out preaching, I was a pastor in Oklahoma, and uh, I went through one of the uh, darkest seasons of my entire life. Uh, Some of you know, I know my wife knows very well that uh, I went through a season where I was uh, incredibly fearful of getting up on stage and preaching. And I, I knew God had called me to ministry So I didn't know why I had this crippling fear to the point where I would stay up the night before I was preaching, uh, curled up in a ball in tears, uh, begging God to remove this crippling anxiety from me. A mentor told me, Reese, sometimes God just calls us to be obedient and to do things scared. And so I continued preaching and I continued doing it scared out of my mind. I'd walk up on stage with red blotches on my neck and on my face. Uh, and I didn't know why I hadn't had that fear before. And slowly but surely, God began to do an amazing work in my life. He began to remove this fear from my life to the point where I stand before you today without any fear of getting up and preaching. And if you would have told me that three years ago, it may not seem like a big deal, but if you would have told me that three years ago, that I would be able to do this without any fear, I would have said, you're absolutely crazy. But it's a moment in my life where I can look back and say, that was only God. There's there's nothing else that could have forced that to happen. It was only God. And I'm guessing that you probably have some only God moments in your life. Maybe it was a time where God healed your sister unexpectedly. Or maybe it was a time where you were laid off from your job and you didn't know how in the world God was possibly going to provide for you and your family. But he did. And you came through. I think a lot of us have some of these only God moments. And for the Israelites in the Old Testament, these only God moments are what God kept reminding the Israelites of time and time again. Exodus 20, verse 2 states that I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. God actually uses this exact phrase throughout the Old Testament 28 times to remind the Israelites every time when they're doubting. Hey, guys, remember. Remember the Red Sea? Remember Egypt? Remember Pharaoh? Remember how I freed you from slavery? Why are you doubting me? I think God knows the power of personal experience with him and how that is a motivator for us to live out our faith now. And so my encouragement to you is to remember God's faithfulness. That comes point number three, remember God's faithfulness. In the book, Faith for Exiles, the Barna Research Group conducted research on what the most important aspects are to a robust faith in Jesus for young people. What they found is interesting. They found that young people who are deeply committed to following Jesus have had a personal experience with God. In other words, they could name a time in their life where they had experienced God on a personal level. This could have been something as small as simply God answering a prayer request or from them experiencing God in worship. Young people who lived out a robust faith in Christ had experienced God. 
And so what I want to challenge all of us to do is to remember the times where God has been faithful in our life. Parents, I would encourage you to keep a journal of the times where God has answered a prayer for your loved one, for your child, a time where God was extremely real and relevant to your young person's life. And when they're doubting and when they're struggling, bring up that journal, remind them of the instances where God came through. Just as God did for his children, the Israelites, reminding them of his faithfulness. I think we too are to remind our children of God's faithfulness in their life. We've been calling this series uh, Powerhouse Family. And I think one of the ways that we can lead young people to become powerhouse youth is by simply reminding them of God's power in their lives. Another source of power, not just for young people, but for all of us, is godly mentors. Older believers discipling younger believers is modeled throughout scripture, and this is demonstrated powerfully through the life of Paul and Timothy. Some of you know the story. Paul met Timothy on his second missionary journey through the Mediterranean and became a spiritual mentor to Timothy. They continued to grow in their relationship, and Paul actually called Timothy, my true son in the faith. Here at Lake City, you've maybe heard us say that we believe that parents are the first and best disciplers of their own kids. We believe that the biblical model, what we see in Deuteronomy 6, all the way up to the form of the New Testament, is a model where parents are the primary disciplers of their own kids, which means they're the ones who have the responsibility to raise their children, to teach them scripture. But we also believe that the Bible outlines older believers pouring into the lives of younger believers. It extends past the boundary of biological lines. This brings us to point number four, which is it takes a church. It takes a church. As we've already talked about, the responsibility of passing down faith to the next generation isn't just the responsibility of the biological family. Whether you have kids or not, or whether your kids have moved out of the house, whether you're single, you all have the responsibility of passing down your faith to this next generation. Pastor and author Rich Velotis said, the Bible is more communal than individual. First, Jesus teaches us to pray our father, not my father. Paul uses the phrase our Lord 53 times and my Lord only one time. Jesus is my personal savior. That saying is not found in scripture. We are the people of God. We belong to each other. So I believe, and I think what Pastor Rich Velotis is after here, is that the Bible outlines a communal model of discipleship, one that doesn't include me doing it by myself. What Barna Research Institute found is that young people who have an adult mentor in their church are three times more likely to continue following Jesus than those that didn't have a mentor. Three times more likely if they had a mentor in their church to continue following Jesus. This is why I think one of the best things that we can do are surround our young people with godly mentors. Here's what seminary professor Chap Clark says. He says, here's the bottom line. Every kid needs five adult fans. Any young person who shows any interest in Christ needs a minimum of five people of various ages who will say, I'm going to love that kid until they are fully walking as an adult member of this congregation. I love that idea 
of building a team of five adult mentors to pour into our young people. When I think of some of the greatest mentors of all time, uh, I think of a guy named Yoda. And you may be thinking, uh, what in the world is he talking about? That's probably going through your mind at this point. But Luke Skywalker was spoiled with some pretty awesome mentors because not only did he have Obi-Wan Kenobi training him in the ways of the lightsaber, but he also had this little green guy over 900 years of knowledge and experience uh, with little Yoda. And I think one of the models we get, not through media, not only through media or entertainment, but obviously through scripture, is that mentorship matters. We need older people in our lives as young people to lead us, to train us, to disciple us. I'm not saying if you're a young person that once you get a mentor, you have to carry him around on your back all day long like Luke Skywalker did. Although your mentor might appreciate that. I don't know. But I want to challenge the adults in the room. Would you be somebody's five? Would you be on somebody's team? One of the really easy ways you can do that is volunteer to be a part of our children's ministry team, our middle school or high school ministry team. We always need volunteers to say, yeah, I don't necessarily have all the answers, but I would love to walk alongside a young person in their faith journey. We actually have a booth out in the lobby after service is over. If you'd like to sign up to serve and to help lead young people. Some of you have already committed to our Pray For Me campaign. Our Pray For Me campaign uh, is we kind of launch it once a year. And what it is, is it pairs up students with three adult uh, prayer champions is what we call them. Three people who are committed to praying for that young person for a year. Uh, And I just want to say on behalf of all of our young people, thank you if you have invested in a young person through Pray For Me. And if you're interested, we're actually launching our Pray For Me campaign this upcoming fall again, where you can sign up to pray for a young person. Yeah, come on. So I want to I wanna encourage everyone, be on somebody's team. Be a five. Except for my wife, Allison, she'll always be a 10. But everyone else, everyone else, be a five. As I've been uh, researching this topic of Generation Z, it got me thinking about what kind of Jesus we've been portraying to our young people. And sometimes I wonder if we're training our teens to believe that Christianity is safe, the world is evil, and we should avoid people who are part of the latter. I wonder if we are taming the gospel and the life of Jesus into cute stories and moral lessons. Sometimes we forget that Jesus was a Jewish man who washed feet and engaged with the broken and the outcast and the marginalized of of society. He did not consider himself better than others, but humbled himself to be the sacrifice for our sin. He talked about things like turning the other cheek, loving our neighbor, loving our enemy even, things so radical that if we actually did it, Christianity would transform the world around us. I think in many ways we've domesticated Jesus and therefore domesticated our Christianity. Which brings us to our fifth and final point, is that the gospel is countercultural. The truth is, is that the gospel always has been and always will be different than the culture around us. James 4.4 states that whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. When we try to conform the gospel to look more like the world, we dilute the gospel 
into a light and fluffy story that doesn't require anything of us. And I have to ask, what young person would want to be part of a gospel like that? I believe that the gospel is revolutionary, that the gospel is daring. The gospel invites us into a new way of living, a new reality that starts here on earth and extends when we die and when we go to heaven. Author Shane Claiborne once said, if we lose our kids to a culture of drugs, alcohol, and partying, it isn't because we didn't entertain them. It's because we didn't challenge them. We didn't dare them. And more often than not, I believe that young people want to be challenged for something. You know, I, as a youth pastor, spend a lot of time thinking about how we can better engage young people. What are the fun events and entertaining things we can do to draw kids in? But I also realize that we as a church cannot compete with Hollywood. We can't compete with the best entertainment industries of the world. But we do have something that none of these entertainment industries can offer. And that's the best news of all time. It's the news that there's a God who believes you are worth dying for. It's the news that says God sent his one and only son, Jesus, to die on the cross for your sin, that you may live with him and live forever. It's a, it's a message that invites us to be a part of the greatest mission in human history, the Great Commission. We are challenged with taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, teaching people the ways of Jesus, and participating in God's kingdom work here on earth so that broken lives would be restored and that God's glory will be magnified throughout all of creation. This is a message worth hearing about, worth participating in. So young person, I don't know where you're at in your faith journey. Maybe you call yourself a Christian, but you've sort of wandered away. Or maybe your faith is strong and you've been living a strong relationship with Jesus. Or maybe you haven't really fully committed your life to Christ. Wherever you may be, I want your life to count for something. I want your life to count for something. And the best way to make your life count is to give your life to Jesus. Another Shane Claiborne quote, he said, All around you, people will be tiptoeing through life just to arrive at death safely. But dear children, do not tiptoe. Run, hop, skip, or dance. Just don't tiptoe. Go all in with Jesus. Don't tiptoe with religion, but instead fully submit your life to God. So our next steps. First, I will invite young people to express doubts and ask questions. Remember, doubt isn't what kills faith. Silence is. Next, I will, in, in, I will be a five or I will build my five. So I'll either commit to being on someone's team to rooting for a young person, or if I'm a young person, I'll sit down with my mom and dad and say, what are some of the people, who are some of the people that I'd like to invest into my life? And finally, I will commit to recording God's faithfulness in my life. Whether I'm a parent, whether I'm a young person, whether I'm single, I will record the moments that God has been faithful to me. And there, I will remind myself of God's faithfulness. So as we close today, I want to leave us with a challenge. Earlier, we discussed the current state of Christianity in America. We talked about the growing number of atheists and the shrinking number of churchgoers. We talked about the 70% of high schoolers who one day will leave the church. But I want you to hear me say that these statistics should not scare us. 
These statistics should not scare us as the church. Pastor and author Mark Sayers says, a growing sense of worry haunts the Western church. The rise of a post-Christian society alongside declining numbers of those who practice biblical faith combined with a corresponding weakening of Christian influence has created an anxious mood. This mood can range from a sense of defeat to a feeling of deep vulnerability to a desire to retreat into a religious refuge. Our fears are usually connected to the boogeyman we call secularism. In church, I just want to say with everything in us, let's reject this fear notion. We will not be intimidated by secularism or postmodernism. We will not shrink back or huddle up in our religious circles and wait for Jesus to come back. As Pastor Tome reminded us a couple of weeks ago beautifully in Matthew 16, 18, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church is alive and active, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are moving forward against the dark forces, and we will not retreat against them. Finally, young person, I believe in you. Your parents believe in you. Your church believes in you. We don't believe in you because of you, but because of the God who lives inside of you. I see a group of young people who aren't influenced by culture, but who influence culture with the gospel. I see a group of young people who aren't just leaders of tomorrow, but leaders of today. I see a generation that lives out their faith boldly, who loves others deeply, who shares Jesus authentically, who gives generously, who serves faithfully, who honors their father and mother and listens to their leaders. I see a generation that's on fire for Jesus, and it starts with you, young person. In church, it starts with us. Young person, my hope is that Jesus wouldn't be your embarrassing friend, but that he would be your God. Let's pray. Almighty God, one who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ever ask or imagine according to your faithfulness. Lord, we realize that as the world grows darker, your light shines brighter. And God, we ask that you raise up a new generation of faithful followers of Jesus who are passionate and bold about sharing your gospel to the world. Lord, would you not, would you not allow them to be ruled by the things of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of their mind, by your word and by your goodness. And Lord, if you would, would you use your broken people, us, in this church? We don't have all the answers. We don't have it all put together. But God, we want to serve you. Lord, we want to see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So use us, Father. It's in your name we pray. Amen.